rich life. There were many factors that contributed to that experience for me. Many factors. But at that time, and still today, as I look back and remember it, I felt that it was nothing less than a spiritual battle. Another example from my own life, although perhaps a little less in your face. There was a season in my life as a pastor when for an extended period of time that stretched out for months, I woke up every morning, every morning feeling like a complete failure. From the moment that I woke up, this weighty, oppressive feeling was all around me. It was not a feeling that I had failed at something specifically or I had failed in some specific way. It was a deeper sense that not just I had failed, but that I was a failure. Do you understand the difference? I felt that I was a failure in everything I was involved in. I felt I was a failure as a pastor. I felt I was a failure as a husband. I felt I was a failure as a dad or as a son. I felt especially like a failure to all of my friends. Felt like a failure in every friendship that I could remember in my life. These thoughts, these accusations that almost felt like they were coming from outside of me from the moment that I woke up, they led me to lose heart and to want to quit at anything and everything in front of me. Now, Once again, that experience had many factors contributing to it. But I'll tell you what unlocked the doorway toward progress for me in that season of my life. What unlocked the doorway towards some sense of progress in that season when I woke up every day feeling like a failure, it was, when, it was when I began to ask the question, what if there is a spiritual component to this experience? What kind of spirit would want me to wake up feeling every day like a failure? What kind of spirit would want me to lose heart or to lead me to want to quit? It became clear to me that the answer was not the Holy Spirit. Recognizing that there was a spiritual dimension to all of this, I want to be clear and honest, it did not erase my feelings of failure overnight. It did not. But recognizing that there was a spiritual component to this battle, it was for me a turning point because for me it was when I actually began to engage instead of just being defeated day after day. I've seen serious spiritual battles in other people's lives as well. 
friends battling with addiction or with alcoholic tendencies often talk about how it seems as if there are almost voices from the outside saying, you know that you're going to end up there anyway. Why not just start now? I've known people who felt rage that they felt couldn't be contained. I've known people deeply disturbed because family members had dabbled in dark magic. And friends who have felt worried or concerned that this, their family members' choices have influenced their own life stability. I've talked to people who feel influence from voices that feel every bit as real as anything else. Battles are real. When we think about these kinds of spiritual battles, I think very many of us, at least in the church, would be quick to believe that our friends in places like Africa or Indonesia will encounter spiritual opposition or spiritual battles in the process of representing the gospel of Jesus Christ where they are. But listen, if we were to bring our friends from other parts of the world here today, friends like Ray Mensa or Andy and Jenny Smith that we were praying for a few minutes ago, these friends would be quick to point out to us, yes, there is a spiritual component to representing Jesus in places like Africa and Indonesia, but they would be quick to point out there is also a spiritual component to representing Jesus in the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. And they would be quick to point out that the spiritual battles we face are not just battles related to evangelism and seeing people come to faith for the first time. This kind of spiritual opposition, these kinds of spiritual battles, these are an important part of Christian discipleship throughout the journey of faith. Ephesians chapter 6 Verse 10 puts in front of us a call. It is a call to stand with the strength of a warrior in the spiritual battles that we face. But that raises a really important question. How? How how would we stand with the strength of a warrior in the spiritual battles that we will face? This question is not only important for us today, this question was vitally important for the church in Ephesus, the church that first received this letter to the Ephesians nearly 2,000 years ago. It's interesting to recognize that many people in that church family, many followers of Jesus in the city of Ephesus, 
were deeply familiar with the powers of darkness even before they became Christians. Acts chapter 19 tells us some of the historical background about how the gospel came to the city of Ephesus. And listen to this one little explanation of part of what it looked like when people first began coming to know Jesus as Lord in the city of Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, verses 18 and 20 say, Also, many of those who were now believers came, what were they doing? Confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of these books and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's a lot of fascinating questions that emerge from those couple of lines. But for now, suffice it to say that in the church in Ephesus, there were many people who were deeply familiar with the powers of darkness even before they became Christians. For them, becoming a Christian meant, in part, turning away from the powers of darkness and turning away from dabbling in this kind of darkness that had once been so much a part of their lives. And then they became Christians. And they began following Jesus as Lord. And then what? And then these believers who had made a decisive break with those powers of darkness, who at great cost to themselves gave up books that were otherwise valuable, they found that they were still wrestling, to use the language that Paul uses here in Ephesians chapter 6. Still wrestling, still in hand-to-hand combat, grappling with the powers of darkness, even as followers of Jesus. And so, those believers in that church in Ephesus also needed to ask this question. How can we stand with the strength of a warrior in the spiritual battles that we will face even as Christians? And in order to answer that question, what our passage does is it tells us a little bit about the opposition we face. And it tells us a little bit about what Christ provides. Let's pay attention to these different components of what we learn here in this passage. If we're going to learn to stand with the strength of a warrior in the spiritual battles that we face, we want to understand something first about the opposition, the enemy, the foe that we face. Verse 11 names the devil. And maybe that gets your attention. (laughs) As soon as the topic of the devil comes up, I feel we should clarify that there are two kinds of mistakes that we can make related to the devil. On the one hand, the first type of mistake might be to overemphasize the devil and his power. 
And this could begin even with watching a horror movie or something like that, because, you know, if we see something in a movie or if we read something online, then it must be accurate, right? Um, and, And sadly, sadly, there are many church circles that will not only support that kind of fear and obsession with the devil, but they'll even multiply that kind of fear and obsession with the devil. And pretty soon, if we follow that path of kind of paranoid fear and obsessive thinking about the devil and his power, pretty soon, if we follow that trajectory, we find ourselves looking for the devil in every single detail of life. We lose track of how other things play a part as well. And so maybe if we lose our temper and we get angry and we blow up at somebody else, we lose track of we lose track of the other factors that can play in and we say if you get angry then you need to be delivered from a spirit of anger. That's all there is to it. We lose track of the Bible's call toward responsibility and repentance. We lose track of how other stress factors might be playing a part in life. We lose track of how our personal history and our personal background might play in. We lose track of how our physical embodiment might play a part, low blood sugar or hormones out of control. And instead of paying attention to the multiple factors that might play a part, we simply say you need to pray away that spirit of anger or the spirit of whatever it is that ails you today, right? You see, an obsession with the devil and his power It makes us too one-dimensional, if you will, right? Too simplistic, too narrow in our understanding of how complex our lives really are. So that's one kind of mistake we can make to overemphasize the devil and his powers. But there's another kind of mistake that we can make, right? The other kind of mistake as opposed to overemphasizing the devil and his powers, is to underemphasize the devil and his power, and maybe even to try our best to simply ignore the reality of spiritual forces of darkness altogether. Interestingly, this approach also will lead us toward a perspective that is too simplistic, too one-dimensional. Even in the church, we have our own ways of under-emphasizing the devil. Maybe we've seen so many people make such a show about demons, and it seems so fake and so produced and so influenced by Hollywood that we just say, no thanks, not interested. Maybe we've bought into our surrounding culture's approach to things, which treats any discussion of spiritual darkness as something that just sounds like a medieval fairy tale. We'd rather believe in extraterrestrial aliens than the existence of demons. And if we follow that path of under-emphasizing the devil and his powers... We'll treat everything as if it's only a sin problem or only a fallen world problem in general. 
And once again, we end up too narrow, too one-dimensional, too simplistic to account for all of the complexities of our lives in this world that we live in. Of course, our friends in the rest of the world, in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, in the South Pacific, in the Middle East, folks around the world have no problem believing that there are unseen spiritual forces at work in the world around us. In fact, they find it to be a much deeper way of understanding our world than the one-dimensional materialistic explanations that have become common in our Western culture. Maybe this should alert us to the fact that our own cultural assumptions might be blinding us on this point. Listen, I'm aware some people might be here today and might be awfully skeptical about the reality of spiritual opposition, the devil and so forth. And I guess I should say that in all honesty, I can't prove to you somehow that these unseen forces exist. I can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. But perhaps I can at least leave you with a question. What if there really is more going on in our world around us than our materialistic Western assumptions have led us to believe? Wouldn't you want to be warned? Wouldn't you want to be The author C.S. Lewis famously opined that the devil, for his part, is equally pleased with either of these mistakes that we've mentioned. He suggests the, the devil would be equally pleased to leave us terrified of his might or to leave us blissfully ignorant of his tactics. But God does not want us to be uninformed. In the book of Ephesians, God tells us at least three things that we need to know about the opposition that we face. I'll hit these kind of quickly here in order to explain this opposition that we face. First of all, the spiritual opposition is powerful. That's why verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, why this array of terminology? It's to remind us that the opposition we face, the spiritual enemy who is opposed to us, is powerful. Our enemy is a whole army of spiritual forces of darkness, not just One devil running from one person to the next and getting exhausted in the process. But a whole army of spiritual forces of darkness. And they're not charmingly harmless forces like Peeves or nearly headless Nick in the Harry Potter series. Rather, they are powerful and formidable opponents. They're comparable to the most powerful rulers and authorities that we know in our realm. Except that they operate in a spiritual realm. Martin Luther understood that our opposition is powerful. 
A hymn that he wrote that churches everywhere still sing today goes like this. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Do you hear what Martin Luther understood? Did we in our own strength confide all our battling would end up with what? Losing. Martin Luther got what Ephesians 6.12 is telling us. The spiritual opposition we face really is powerful. And beyond that, this spiritual opposition is not only powerful, the spiritual opposition that we face is not only powerful, it's also, we might say, tactical. It's strategic. That's the second thing to learn about our opposition. You'll notice that phrase in verse 11 describing what we stand against. We stand against, namely, quote, the schemes of the devil. Christians, perhaps we need to wake up to this biblical idea today. Our enemy is scheming against us. He's got strategies. He's got tactics. He's got schemes. Now, my sons and I lately have been watching this Netflix documentary called Quarterback. Um, which follows three NFL quarterbacks through a full NFL season. It's been fun entertainment for us. And there's one thing that caught my attention recently when we were watching uh, Patrick Mahomes talk about the way that his team prepares, especially for the weeks that they play against the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick. Why? Why do they put extra emphasis into preparing for weeks that they play against the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick? Because of Bill Belichick's schemes. Because of his strategies that they know will be custom designed and brilliantly calculated to exploit their weakness this week. I know we've got some New England Patriots fans in the room. And so I want to be gentle about comparing Bill Belichick to the devil. But there is some comparison to be made. Fair enough. Now here's the thing. Christian, this is why we need to prepare. Because while Pat Mahomes has to prepare for the schemes of Bill Belichick, custom-tailored to exploit his weaknesses one or two weeks a year, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12 are telling us that we need to prepare for schemes of an enemy that are custom-designed to exploit our weaknesses not one or two weeks a year, but 52 weeks a year. Christians, we would be wise to prepare even more diligently than Pat Mahomes prepares to face the schemes of Bill Belichick. 
We ought to prepare to face the schemes of the devil that face us this week. In fact, this is a helpful question for discipleship and for fellowship. A helpful question that you might discuss with your fellowship group or with other friends this week. What weaknesses do you think the enemy is trying to exploit in your life at this time? What weaknesses do you think the enemy would be likely to try to exploit in your life? What schemes or tactics might the enemy have against you? This spiritual opposition that we face is powerful, it's tactical, and beyond that, there's one more thing I need to notice here. According to the book of Ephesians, this spiritual opposition that we face is also divisive. This might come as something of a surprise to you, to put it like this. But do you remember the thing that Paul said not long ago in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, church, and give no opportunity to the devil. See, in the worldview of the New Testament, the devil is not only powerful and tactical, the devil also has a vested interest in creating and promoting divisions, especially among God's people. Which, by the way, is probably why the book of Ephesians has the longest teaching about spiritual battles of any of Paul's letters. Why? Because he's writing to a church, as we have seen, as we've walked through the book of Ephesians from chapter 1 to where we are now close to the end of the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. We've seen over and over again, this is a church that is stretched and split and divided along ethnic lines and stretched and split and divided along other lines. Paul is writing to this church that is being pulled apart in different directions and he has been appealing throughout this letter in light of the common fatherhood of God and the common salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and our common experience of one spirit. Paul has been appealing over and over to the church saying things like this, I am urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then we read about the devil who finds some opportunity, who finds some foothold, to use another translation, when we allow the sun to go go down on our anger against one another in the church family. And we begin to see something important here. The spiritual opposition that we face is powerful and it is tactical. And maybe a little bit more specifically, it is divisive. The enemy that we face does not want our congregation to thrive in Christian life. The enemy that we face does not want 
us to thrive in Christian harmony. The enemy that we face does not want you to live a life in which you feel united with the brothers and sisters who are seated around here in this room today. We should be aware. These are a few things that this passage tells us about the enemy we face, the opposition that we stand against. But if we're going to stand with something like the strength of a warrior up against this kind of opposition, how are we going to do that? The answer is that we need what Christ alone provides. We need more resources than we can find just in our own strength. Were we in our own strength to confide? All our striving would end up in what? So what is it that Christ provides for us? Look at me again at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand with strength like the warrior, strength like the strength of a warrior in battle. What is this armor of God? You're familiar with this armor of God that Christ supplies for us, perhaps. It comes in, the, in a string of six or seven pictures for us. It comes in a list of pictures that at once call to mind the picture of a Roman soldier dressed for battle. And at the same time, call to mind the images from the book of Isaiah of how the Lord planned to dress himself for battle. In the book of Isaiah, the Lord is described as carrying with him righteousness tied around his waist in Isaiah 11.4. In Isaiah 49.2, we read about God's servant and how he made his mouth like a sharp sword. Later in Isaiah 52, 7, we read that the feet of the one preaching the good news of peace. And then a little bit later in Isaiah 59, 17, in the prophecy of Isaiah, we read God describing himself as putting on righteousness as a breastplate and putting on his head a helmet of salvation. This is the armor of God. This is not just armor that Jesus says, try this stuff out. When we put this in the context of all of the scriptures, this is the armor of God himself, which is offered to us for the battles that we will face. But do you remember that story in the Old Testament of David preparing for battle? Trying to put on armor that was just too big and lanky, so much so that he said, I can't even bring this stuff with me into the battle. Unlike David, this armor, the armor of our God, the armor of our Lord, the armor of our King, 
It fits us perfectly, and it is perfectly suited for the battles ahead. How and why? Because it's ours if we're together with Jesus Christ. Notice how this armor works. I'll go over this a little bit quickly. Maybe there's a belt of what? Truth. A belt of truth. A belt of what is revealed to be true. There's a breastplate of what? Righteousness. Righteousness, which in Paul's teaching might be a gift from God to us by faith, by grace, through faith. And righteousness, which is what we grow into in our union with Christ over time. There are shoes. And in the ancient world, today we think of shoes as just stylish things you buy online with names like Jordan on the side of them to impress other friends. In their world, shoes for battle were grippy on the bottom, maybe even with spikes. Why? So that you could stand your ground without being pushed backwards. Grippy shoes, which represent what? The readiness given by the gospel of peace. Have we heard about truth or righteousness or peace anywhere else in the book of Ephesians so far? All over. And then in verse 16, in all circumstances, in all kinds of circumstances that you face, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flying weapons that the enemy is launching against you. Verse 16 maybe takes a little bit more explanation. Those who understand uh, the language of the New Testament better than most of us do remind us that this is not the little tiny shield that you might have seen in movies like Gladiator. The little tiny shield that just can protect you if you're lucky enough to swing it fast enough. This was the large shield, the kind that was as tall as you were, that you could stamp into the ground. Why? So that you could just hide behind its strength. This isn't a weapon that you need to master how to move with cunning and agility. This is a mobile barn, a mobile silo that you can carry. It's a mobile place of refuge that you can stomp into the dirt and crouch down when you're all out of strength and simply find refuge behind the strength of something else. And what is that something else that we are called to take up? It's the strength of faith. And what does that refer to? It refers simply to believing that what God said is true. And I, I can't help but kind of run a little toward application here for a second, but let me just say this. In the most intense kinds of spiritual battles that I have found myself in, this is probably what I have needed more than anything else. When all else feels weak and shaky, when I don't feel like I've got the strength to put on my grippy shoes and push back, 
when I don't feel like I've got the strength to pick up a big old breastplate and put it on and invite the attacks that may come, sometimes I just need to plant God's truth in the ground and hide behind it. And say, however I feel today, I know that this is true. Nothing will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Just plant it. When all else fails and I've got no other strength and nothing else to hide behind, when there's no other battle, when there's no more fight left in me, sometimes I just need to pick up one thing that's true from God's word and I need to plant it in the ground like a giant Roman shield and I just need to collapse behind it and find refuge hiding behind the strength of what God has already said to be true. Brothers and sisters, this is how we use the shield of faith. We hide behind what God has already told us. We hide behind His promises. And in addition to that, the helmet of salvation. This letter is written to a church full of Christians who have already been converted. They've already experienced new life. They've already, they've already been born into the family of God by faith. They've already experienced redemption in Christ Jesus. They've already been filled and sealed for the day of redemption with the Holy Spirit. And now Paul says, don't forget to put on the helmet of salvation. What is he calling Christians to do? He's not calling Christians in the church to get saved over and over again every day. What is he calling us to? Go back again to the gospel every day. And pick up what Christ has already provided for you. And by faith, put it on again today so that the enemy can't get inside your heart. What kind of stuff, I ask, what kind of stuff is... Ephesians 6 describing as it's describing the weaponry of God that is provided and given and well suited for us for the battles ahead. What is the armor of God? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry to be so disappointingly simple, but look at the text. It's the truth. The righteousness, the faith that we hide behind what God has said to be true. The helmet of salvation, not saving ourselves, but just saying, I know this is true again today, and I'm putting it on to keep the devil out of my head. Picking up the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. What is the armor of God? That is given to us through Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. It is the good news that we already know. That we have already believed. That we have already experienced. And yet we need to preach to ourselves. And hide behind. And put on afresh today. In order to find a warrior's strength. Not from within ourselves. But strength that comes from the Lord himself. Handed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Six pictures of this weaponry that we need. Of this armor that we are given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then a seventh thing added. For good measure. What is that seventh thing? 
It's found in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You know what we need for the battles ahead? We need the armor of God, which is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to keep praying for one another. There's something powerful about praying for one another. There's something vital about praying for each other in our church family. There's something vital, so vital about this. That Paul, after listing with six word pictures the kinds of armor we need, he says, there's something else that I want you to keep on doing, but I don't even have a word picture for it. But even though I don't have a word picture for it, I got to name it. To put on that armor of God, which is yours in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and keep on praying for each other, brothers and sisters. In fact, Paul goes even further in this beautifully charming moment, right? Sometimes we wrongly think that asking people to pray for us is what we do only if we're like baby Christians or weak sauce Christians or whatever, right? But what does Paul do here? And by the way, if you don't know much about the New Testament, let me just say, Paul is not a baby Christian and he's not a weak sauce Christian, okay? Fair enough. What does Paul do in verse 20? Uh, Excuse me, in verse 19, he says, and also, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? For boldness in proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. That I might declare it boldly as I might speak. I wonder when the last time was that you asked another Christian Another group of Christians, could you please pray for me? And I wonder what it is that makes it so difficult for us to do that. Could that itself be one of the schemes of the enemy? Brothers and sisters, we need the armor of God. And we need the power of prayer. This is not a power that represents how earnestly we pray or how beautifully we pray. It's a power that represents us in open-palmed, empty-handed humility coming before the Lord Himself and saying, I need your help for the battles that I'm going to face. And my brothers and sisters... Start filling in their names right now in your own mind. Your brothers and sisters, Lord, they need your help as well. And then you go to others and you say, would you pray for me for the battles that I'm going to face? And in the midst of this, in the midst of this, the New Testament seems to believe that it is possible For an ordinary church, like the church in Ephesus, 
or an ordinary congregation like this one here today. The New Testament seems to believe that with the resources that the Lord has provided, we truly are able to stand with the strength of a warrior against the opposition that we will face. But how? Here's the answer. Only with the strength of Christ himself. In a way, the whole passage is bound up in a few words in verse 10. Finally, be strong with your own resources. Be strong with your own willpower? No. Finally, be strong with your own habits? No. Habits are great. Finally, be strong with how well you can fight these battles? No. Finally, be strong in the Lord and with the strength of His might. Reading this in the original language, something would have popped that might not pop to our eyes. The last time those three words, strong, strength, and might, appeared together in the book of Ephesians, do you know what the context was? The context was the power of God to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And now Paul looks at a local church, a congregation of people who are going to face battles, who are being torn apart by the schemes of the devil. And he says, I'm calling you to stand with the strength of a warrior. How are you going to do that? With the resurrection power of Jesus Christ himself clothing you and no other way. Listen, were we in our own strength to confide all our striving against the schemes of the enemy? All are striving to stay united. All are striving to represent the love of God and the message of hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ here in Aurora and to the ends of the earth. If we were in our own strength to confide, all our striving would be losing. But instead of striving in our own strength, through Faith and by grace, we are called to stand with the resurrection strength of our Lord Jesus Christ clothing us and strengthening us and giving us power and giving us a safe place to hide when all else fails and giving us every word we need to represent his truth here and to the ends of the called to live and to stand with the strength of a soldier in the face of the battles in in the battles that we will face how in the power of our lord jesus christ who has once and for all time defeated all the powers of death satan United with him, dressed in his armor that he has provided and supplied and given by grace to us, and crying out on one another's behalf for his help in our lives. Brothers and sisters, let's stand strong in the Lord.
this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.